Good morning. Uh, as Murray said, my name is Nick Bratcher, and I am your campus minister at the University of Kentucky. You may not know it. Uh, I think I said this last time I was with you, but I remind you that uh, we covet your thoughts and your prayers uh, for our work at UK. We actually, in a sense, because uh, RUF is one of the most Presbyterian things that uh, this church or any church does in the PCA, uh, I actually work for you, in a sense. Um, I serve at your leisure, your church, amongst other churches in the Ohio Valley Presbytery called me to do that work. And so, yeah, uh, you could get me fired, I guess, or whatever. Um, this morning, we're going to be in Luke 5, verses 1 through 11. I believe there's a title uh, called, like, What's in a Name in your program. Just disregard that title. I don't know what I was thinking when I made it. Um, while you're turning there, here's some context for our passage this morning. Uh, Jesus has begun his public ministry in Galilee. In the previous chapter, Jesus has been casting out demons, healing the sick, and preaching forgiveness and freedom for those enslaved to sin. Uh, one such healing was the mother-in-law of a man that Luke identifies as Simon. And uh, This is in the previous chapter, uh, Luke 4. And this is the same Simon that we will see in our text this morning, who will one day be given the, the nickname of Peter by Jesus. He will go on to be one of Jesus' three closest friends, a prominent leader in the early church detailed in the book of Acts, and he'll write two letters found in the New Testament. But we aren't there yet in our story. For now, Peter has simply witnessed the power of Jesus, has heard him teaching among crowds and even in his home. In our text this morning, Peter is still employed as a co-owner of a fishing business. He's not a quit-his-day-job, so to speak. So what changes for Peter? How does he go from that fisherman to this prominent New Testament figure? Well, this is the beginning of that story. Let's, let's read it together. This is Luke 5, 1 through 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. When they came and filled both boats, uh, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that uh, you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Here's my contention this morning. 
we share a lot in common with the Simon Peter that we find here in Luke 5. For many of us, we've met Jesus. Right? We've, we've seen his work in the life of other people. We heard about the miracles. Uh, don't even doubt that they've happened. Uh, we've, you know, we believe the claims that Jesus makes about himself, like the ability to set people free from sin. We may have even taken some steps to follow Jesus. We go to church, obviously, to hear from him. But this morning, I want us to consider if that's enough. In my hometown of Beaverdam, Kentucky, uh, in my childhood Church of God church, we used to have these week-long tent meetings through the week, uh, Monday through Friday. We, we called those revivals. Um, they, they were these church meetings where every evening we'd have a guest preacher come into town and, you know, he would call us into deeper obedience and love for God. And people would pray fervently. They would raise their hands. Uh, they would, y- y'all are Presbyterians, so you may not know uh, what this is, but they would have Jericho marches. Uh, this is where you run around the sanctuary. Um, some of y'all may have grown up in that tradition, so uh, talk to me after the service. Um, so speaking in tongues, I mean, all, all of these things, searching for a renewed sense of intimacy with God, and joy in the Holy Spirit. There was a sense that something had cooled, that our love for God, that our intimacy with Him had grown cold and distant, and people were doing their best to reignite that relationship. Now, you, you might turn your nose up at you know, how that is done or whatever, uh, depending on what tradition you're from or where you're here this morning. But here's what I want to say. I think it speaks to a distinct human need to be truly intimate with God, right? Not just to know about him, but to know him and how difficult it is to truly find that communion. Sometimes that's because we've never really placed our faith in Jesus in the first place. We hold him at arm's length. Other times we may not, uh, uh, sorry, other times we may have at one time been very excited about Jesus. But as life goes on and responsibilities pile up, we slowly drift from God. Yet, I can say this with confidence, we want to know him personally. We can sense that, we can always sense when we're just going through the motions, and Jesus, for his part, doesn't want to leave us in that place. And he brings Peter through a transformation in our passage this morning from simply knowing about Jesus. to He saw him, he heard him, he, he, he couldn't disbelieve the miracles, they happened before his eyes but go from knowing about Jesus to following him, to being in relationship with him. And while not all of the details will be the same for you this morning, God's uh, not calling you to be a leading apostle in the early church, for example. Much of what Peter experiences are the same exact things that we need from Jesus. So with that in mind, I want to spend our time this morning talking about three things. How we minimize Jesus, how we meet Jesus, and how we maintain relationship with Jesus. Uh, Let's look at our first point, how we minimize Jesus. Before we look at the solution, before we look at how we get intimate uh, with God, I want to outline what keeps us from being so for a moment. How is it that we can hear Jesus' words, believe in his power, even follow him to some extent, but not enjoy rich closeness and communion with him? How can that happen? Let's see how Peter does it. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. Jesus finishes teaching. 
looks at his acquaintance Peter washing his net and tells him to get back in the boat and give fishing another go. How does, how does Simon Peter respond in verse 5? Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. Taken as a whole, this might seem like an innocuous response. Peter does what Jesus asked, but at the very least, it does reveal that Peter, although willing, is a tiny bit, at least a tiny bit, reticent to obey Jesus' command. He doesn't immediately do it. He lets Jesus know they are not on the same page about what needs to happen next. Those who have kids, or if you've been a kid yourself, you'll recognize this exchange, right? You ask your child to do something like take out the trash, or help bring in the groceries, or take a couple hours on a Saturday to work on a house project with you. What happens? What happens sometimes? Surely your kids are immediately obedient every time you ask them to do anything. But how do they often respond? What, is, what does the pause, the huff, the puff, the, uh, you know, what is that roll of the eyes? What does it communicate about your relationship? Right? It means you're not as close as you'd hoped, right? The trust isn't all the way there. The commitment between the two of you is waning, even if ever so slightly, right? Now, I'm picking on Peter about that. He does do what Jesus said, but I want to pick on him because I think we need to pick on our own hearts for a moment this morning. Let's break down what this response reveals about Peter's heart. First, look at, look at the, uh, verse 5 again. He says, Master, Master. Think about what this word connotes. A master owns or rules something. To, to use it signifies an attitude of obedience, right? An attitude of obedience, uh, you know, it, it signifies that uh, one commentator I read said that it, it's a term that could even be used as a transfer of authority over the boat to Jesus, right? If Jesus is the master of the boat, then Peter is not. If Jesus is a master, then Peter is not in control, except the words that follow Peter's recognition of surrender are excuses of why he shouldn't have to surrender, why he shouldn't have to do it. You know what I call this, what we call this. We call this lip service, right? Lip service allows us the feeling that we are close and obedient, but without actually having to be so. We talk with our friends about God, we go to a Bible study, but we're careful when we go and when we do not to, be, not to give too much away to be seen as undignified. We'll give to our church, but not a dime more than my tithe. And don't ask me to give to anything else, right? That's what's, that's what's required. We'll talk about all sorts of doctrine, you know, what's wrong with other churches or the world out there with its sexual immorality and its drunkenness so that we don't have to come to terms with the evil that's happening in our own hearts. Lip service keeps us at a distance from God. We talk about him, but do we know him? But that's not all. What about the plea from Peter? What follows after the master? He says, we toiled all night in verse 5. In other words, We've been working all night for nothing. What makes you think now will be any different? Now, in fairness to Peter, the fact that they were using the nets at night does actually give us some indication why he would be a little understandably reluctant to try again. It's not just that they've come up empty on this particular night and he doesn't want to be let down again. It's that now, in the light of day, 
they're even more unlikely that, that they'll catch a fish than when they fished the previous night. Well, let me explain. In the ancient world, there were two kinds of fishing nets. Ones that you'd throw out and try to catch fish by surprise. These you would use during the day. Sometimes you'll still see if you go to the beach, people will throw a, like a net out and you try and catch the fish by surprise and then pull them in. But the second kind of net, the net being used here that you draw along a boat, is called a trammel net that was made of linen and was visible to fish during the day. Assumedly, if you try to use it from your boat in the daytime, dragging it, fish will just swim away to avoid the net. They can see it coming. But the point stands that Peter is reluctant. Why? I mean, yeah, it's incredibly unlikely, but he's seen Jesus make paralytics walk again and even instantaneously heal his own mother-in-law from a near-death fever. I would think at this point, after having seen all this, right, catching a fish is quite a bit easier than performing any of those miracles. At the end of the day, here's what we have to admit. Peter doesn't think that Jesus knows what he is doing. Right? Regardless of, of his hesitation, he, at the end of the day, thinks, I just don't think Jesus knows what he's doing. And a lot of times, neither do we. Peter knows what he's doing. You can almost hear him muttering it under his breath, can't you? You know, if I was in charge, we wouldn't be doing this. I know what I'm doing. If I can't catch a fish at night, what makes, the, what makes Jesus think we'll catch any now? What does this carpenter know about fishing anyhow? This is ridiculous. Stay in your lane. I should be in charge. Peter, even while he begrudgingly does as Jesus has told him, deep down wants to be in control. If lip service doesn't keep you from communion with Jesus, the allure of control certainly will. We're no different from Peter here. Don't we all at times think that we'd be better at running our lives than Jesus is? right? Well, we think it when we receive, you know, news of suffering or we enter into suffering, a cancer diagnosis, a boss cuts your salary. We think it when a friend gossips about us or we don't make the team or the right grade or we get turned down by the boy or girl that we like. If we really, if, if we were really in control, none of this pointless suffering would happen to us. We'd be on top and we'd finally be secure. This, friends, uh, this attitude that like I, we should be in control of everything, that everything's just happening to me and God's not looking out for me. I mean, it's, it's really the beginning of depression, right? Feeling powerless against the hardship of life and control always promises an antidote. The problem, of course, is that whether you've faced suffering in your life, you haven't even faced it, uh, the, the, the illusion of control actually just brings about more suffering, Right? A lot of our anxiety and worry is just preemptive depression. It's wanting to control what cannot be controlled and dreading the possible suffering that will result. Whether in it or worrying about it, we think if we can just control our, our lives, if I could just get a grip on ourselves and the variables around, uh, around me and us, we can make ourselves happy and secure. But how does that turn out for us? All those bad things can't be stopped, and your anxiety isn't making it any better, is it? Lip service and control. These are the ways we minimize Jesus. I want to make a caveat, too, about anxiety. Um, some people will struggle with anxiety because chemical things. I'm not discounting that. Um, but I am talking about 
uh, at the root of a lot of our anxiety is the fact that uh, we want to control what, what, what can't be controlled. I, I want to do one, one, look at one more piece of how Peter puts a little gap between him and Jesus. He follows up the lip service and the bid for control with obedience. With obedience. He says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. This is the part where despite the grumbling or the eye roll, your kid or employee or roommate for that matter, right, does something you've asked them to do. Now, it may very well be that Peter is really resolute. Puzzle, for sure, but resolute on doing what Jesus has commanded him. But given his reticence, I think that even the obedience can function as another means to minimize Jesus, right? Obedience can certainly serve this purpose, right? Think about it. What does your kid say when, when you ask, okay, you ask them to do something, they roll their eyes, and then you say, did you just roll your eyes at me? And what, what's happening in that moment? They're getting up to take out the trash, and they go, I'm doing what you said, right? I'm doing it. They were saying, I'm doing what you said. This, of course, isn't what you want as a parent, is it? It's not what you want as a roommate. It's not what you want as a friend or a spouse. You don't want somebody begrudgingly doing something for you. You want them to do it because they love and trust you completely. Obedience can sometimes minimize Jesus because it's something we can point to in order to prove that we are close to him, even if we aren't even doing it for him, right? Obedience says, look, I at least did what you asked of me, therefore get off my back. Therefore, I've done what you've asked, we're, we're fine, even if I don't really care about you. We might not want a powerful, angry God mad at us, so we obey out of fear or obligation. This seems to be Peter's motivation, right? All right, we'll try, we'll try fishing again if it will get you off my back. Jesus, you're the boss. But using our works as the basis of our relationship is never going to work with Jesus. Works cannot save us. They do not bring us close to Jesus. They do not pacify him. Sinners cannot pay off their debts by doing what they should have been doing in the first place any more than you could uh, you know, pay off burning 10 pizzas at Papa John's at $10 an hour by like mopping the floors at clothes. That doesn't get you back in the black. We might not say that out loud, you know, that we that we think we can earn a relationship with Jesus by doing the right things. You might have been told this at this church a few times, I hope, I trust, that like you can't earn salvation, but it doesn't stop us from believing it deep down, right? To be clear, I'm not saying that any of the things that, I'm, that uh, have come before, good works or bad, or that they're not an evidence of a life devoted to Jesus, but sometimes they can be used as a smokescreen, to make it seem like we love Jesus when really we just love ourselves. This is the same posture that Jesus condemns in Matthew 7. He says there, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. At the end of all things, Jesus envisions a group of people who will tell him that they were his followers, that they were close. We were close because of all the things they did for him. They were obedient, and Jesus will tell them, I never knew you. 
You cannot earn a relationship with Jesus. If you think you're close to Jesus because you read your Bible, you forgive your enemy, you cast out demons, he will ultimately say to you that he never knew you. He doesn't have a relationship on your terms. He has it on his own. These things cannot justify you. Whether it's through lip service, maintaining control, doing good works, we all can find ourselves minimizing Jesus and drifting from him. So the next question ought to be, okay, well, what are the terms of his relationship, right? How do I get close to him? How do we, how do we get close to him? This brings us to our second point, how we meet Jesus, the real Jesus. Look at me starting in verse 6. Look at me starting in verse 6. After Peter does, as Jesus instructs, a, a miracle happens. After just a, a single drag through the water in the broad daylight with the wrong nets, they take in so many fish that the nets the lip service, the control, the feigned obedience, it's all gone now. This man has fallen prostrate, throwing himself at Jesus. Right? Note, the text does not say that Peter fell, falls down to his own knees. He throws himself at Jesus, whom he now calls Lord. But curiously, he, he does so asking him to go away. Now, why would Peter want that to happen? Think about, the, think about how this has unfolded. Jesus picks out his boat to teach in, tells him to go out and try fishing again after a same night where they get nothing, right? Frustration, failure abounds. Uh, despite his poor attitude, Jesus still says go out. And, and then after all that, blesses him with a miraculous catch. Why would Jesus, or why would Peter want Jesus to depart from him? I'm taking him on every fishing trip for the rest of my life. Look again at what Peter says in verse 8. What reason does he give for asking Jesus to leave? He knows he is a sinful man. Some have posited that this sinfulness stems from, you know, his lack of belief in Jesus' original command, right? To cast the nets, he kind of gives a little lip service, right? And that, and that, uh, that makes, you know, him realize, like, I, I didn't trust you fully. I will say, I think, I don't want to be too hard on Peter this morning. I think we all would have had a little bit of hesitation. Surely that doesn't warrant, you know, hysteria the way that he is acting, there's also the idea that maybe being a fisherman was particularly evil, but actually it was a valued profession in the ancient world, and he owns his own business in it. Now, this understanding of his own sin comes from Peter's realization of who Jesus really is. In the face of this miracle, it reveals that Jesus is the Son of God. There's no minimizing Jesus' power, his authority, his righteousness, his goodness, causing these things to abound despite his own lack of belief. This is actually a motif in Scripture that Luke is highlighting. Earlier in the story of the Bible in Isaiah 6, Isaiah also receives a commission as prophet similar to Peter's call in this passage to be a disciple and a fisher of men. When Isaiah is called as a prophet, he's taken up into the throne room of God, beholds the majesty of power and power of God, and immediately before God's holiness, when he sees God as he is, he senses his own sin and cries out, and this might sound familiar, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a sinner, for I am a man of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Sound familiar, right? When men like Isaiah and Peter catch a glimpse of God as he truly is, they know all the ploys to minimize God aren't going to cut it. We need the same. 
We need a glimpse of God as he truly is. That is how we move out of minimizing and into really meeting Jesus. Now, how do you and I do that, right? We, we haven't been taken up into a throne room and, and we, you know, Jesus isn't still physically here for me to touch, to be with him. H- how do we do that? I could lecture us about, you know, how big God is, maybe say like, go look at a mountain or something. Uh, and, and I think actually those are really good. Look at the stars, the Grand Canyon, Grand Canyon. God made it all. That gives you some sense of how, how majestic and large God really is. Redeemed imagination is a heavenly gift. But we don't just have to actually imagine a majestic throne room in heaven out there somewhere. Here's the good news. God has come to us in Jesus, right? What was it that actually caused Peter to truly see Jesus, right? Peter catches a vision of Jesus's abundant grace, his mercy. Now, you may not have a boat full of fish, but you've got something way better than Peter. You have Christ himself, At the heart of this passage is a miracle of abundance, giving life to the full. It's great, incalculable, incalculable love for Peter. And that is how God chooses to reveal himself to you as well. You deserve the penalty due for your sin, for all those minimizations, to be cast off from God and to reap what you have sown for all eternity. But Jesus, Jesus came to live the life you could not have lived, to die the death that you should have died so that you could be loved by him and by his Father and by the Holy Spirit and and to be given life and life abundant for all eternity. When you see that, when you see all the ways that you minimize all all the places in your life where God does not have complete and sovereign rule over your life and yet he's moved toward you in that, that is way better than a boat full of fish. Friends, that, this morning, you too can repent as Peter did, not just once, but constantly throwing yourself upon that mercy, living at that God's feet. Repentance is turning from our sin to God, away from our minimization of God to God as he really is. This is what it means to truly follow Jesus and to have intimacy with God that our souls long for. It's not drumming up great emotions. It's looking at the cross, counting its cost, knowing that God has met us in this place, in this moment of time, been abundantly gracious with us. Now, what does that look like practically? How do I do that? Okay, okay, I I want to encounter the cross. I want to know that God loves me. I want to feel that. How How do I cultivate that? How do I live a life of repentance instead of minimizing him? This brings us to our third and final point, how we maintain a relationship with Jesus. These are really just a couple application points for what we've said so far. Look with me at verses 10 through 11. Look with me at verses 10 through 11. There's an inward and an outward component of repentant living. In verse 10, we find the outward component. Jesus gives Peter a different vocation. He tells him to quit fishing and become a fisher of men. Now, I mentioned this earlier, but you're not necessarily being called to become an apostle, to quit your day job, right? Uh, You know, to be one of the 12. But you too are called into the world to serve your neighbor for the glory of God. You too are called to live a life that testifies to all people that Jesus is your king. Do you do that? Do you show up to work 
ready to tell people about Jesus in your thoughts, words, and deeds? Do you parent your kids to tell them about Jesus? Do you show up to the bar, to the park, to the 4th of July cookout, Memorial Day? Are you ready to tell people about Jesus, right? That's the evangelism that happens. The thing that, P- that Jesus is calling Peter into is based on how abundantly gracious he has been with Peter up till this point and will continue to be. That's the motivation for evangelism. Of course, I'm not just talking about speaking. You might say, like, Nick, if I spend all my time like, trying to evangelize, like, I'll get fired from my job. I'm not saying that you have to speak, although sometimes I think we're a little reticent to do that when we don't need to be. Right? I'm talking about, like, are you living to let your light shine before a watching world? Are you joyful? Are you the first to volunteer to serve in your job? Are you patient? Are you gentle? Are you kind as a boss? Are you committed to the goodness of your employees when it would be easier to cut corners or make a profit? This is how we, too, can receive God's grace and then bring it to our neighbors. That's what it looks like to practice nearness with God. But there's also an inward component to repentant living. That should put, the grace coming to us should push us outward, but there's an inward component to repentant living too. And this is always more difficult because it's hard to change our own hearts. Look at me at verse 11. Luke records that uh, the men got out of the boat, leaving everything, that detail. They left everything. Earlier, Jesus was called master, but now he truly is because they are living like it. Peter and the other disciples who responded similarly decided to live a life of dependence on Jesus, right? Uh, You can can learn to depend on God one of two ways. Suffering, right? Uh, God taking things from you and then you just having to decide like, well, it's either him or nothing, right? Or you can put yourself in a position of dependence. Give away so much money that you have to be generous because it's all gone, right? It's, It's you volunteering uh, you know, it's you serving your neighbor or serving at, at, at your job or whatever when it's not necessary. You going the extra mile to love your neighbor. And then, you, guess what? You're already doing it. You're cultivating humility. You can do it to yourself. What would this look like? It, you know, it looks like that. Giving recklessly, speaking recklessly for the kingdom, confessing and repenting recklessly. I noticed in your, binder, your, in your pamphlet here, you guys have some groups going on. Man, Tell people stuff you don't want to tell them in those groups, right? Like that is, that is how you can practice and put into uh, your life cultivating nearness to God. Because it's hard to be dependent upon yourself. It's hard to practice control when you're actively giving it away. What would it be like if Redeemer and Louisville was known for this kind of repentant living? What if you were a community where this was happening all the time amongst each other in this city? Put that before you, and then I get to just scamper off back to Lexington. Though we are tempted to minimize Jesus in our control, in our lip service, and in our obedience, when we catch a vision of the abundance of 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 God, the the grace that is set before us, we too can repent and live a life of practiced dependence. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you that, uh, man, uh, that you record people as they really are. Uh, That Peter, in fact, actually was so gracious that, um, you know, when he tells the story um, later on, when people witnessed it, it wasn't, no one was afraid 
to talk about Peter's hesitancy. And therefore, we too can look and see ourselves and know, you know, sometimes the truth is there's a little distance between us and God, a little lack of trust, a little lack of faith. And you are so gracious in the middle of that. Lord, I I pray that that would just motivate us to love our neighbors, to to be kind and gentle with our families, to, uh, yes, uh, to forget ourselves and put you at the center. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would practice that. I pray that uh, Louisville, uh, Kentucky, the the whole world uh, would experience the love that you have for us as we we draw near to you and you, you to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's stand and sing together.